This is the EdTech Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. sitting there with a pen and paper. Virtual reality is an interesting medium where students can access a wide range of content. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the EdTech Podcast Show. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and it is fabulous to be in the studio while everyone else is at school. (laughs) I mean, school is officially back in swing now. We've got everyone from elementary to collegiate-level Back in the classroom, which means 2019 is off to its official complete start. Everyone is chugging along, gaining knowledge, and it kind of makes me miss the month-long vacation that you would get while being in college. But at the same time, it's great to see how generations weave in and out of the classroom. And honestly, as I paused to think about what am I going to chat about during this intro on the podcast... I really started thinking about legacy and what legacy you leave at your school when you leave. Uh, I was texting my sister the other day. She's 15 and a freshman in high school, and she told me she was in choir class, and they were handing out music, and everyone was flipping through. And at my high school, we save all our sheet music and reuse it as songs come back. So there are file cabinets full of music from early 2000s and students who used them, which is kind of hard to believe. I mean, that's a lot of music, right? We got to keep things fresh. And I was in choir myself, enjoyed my fair share of reused music. But anyways, one of her classmates got music and lo and behold, it was my music from the high school days. And it was amazing that they still had my copies with my atrocious scribbled handwriting and my measure numbering. But it's I don't know. I think it's powerful in a cosmic way, you know, to think grandiosely. But yeah, it's it's pretty neat to see how something that I learned from and created art with, that sheet music, can be passed down to another eager student. So yeah, hope that gets your brain churning on the idea of legacy. And yeah, giving you some cool thoughts for your EdTech podcast today. And on the show today, we're really going to be chatting about leaving a legacy in several ways. And we're going to hear from several guests looking at different legacies within EdTech and the legacies that industry-leading educational tools could bring to EdTech. We'll hear a little later from two industry professionals, Clint Clarkson and Scott Meunier of eLearning Alchemy, who look at the legacy of higher education and ask the question, is a college degree really still preparing you for the modern workforce? It's an interesting point. But before we jump into that, we'll look at the potential legacy that a company like PolyUp might have. PolyUp is a computational thinking playground for students to learn coding through fun, intuitive mathematical problem solving, and is one of many companies trying to make coding education easier for all ages. And this is especially potent in today's economy, where data and computer science jobs are so highly regarded and paid out for. It's really the perfect time to engage young minds in the possibilities of coding. So what does 2019 hold for the future of coding education? We're going to be joined by Shia Zarkesh, co-founder and CTO, Chief Teenage Officer of PolyUp, to explain and give his insight 
Shia and I met at ISTE in June. I got to learn a little bit more about Polyup then, but since our last conversation, I want to get his thoughts on where coding education will go in this next year. It's definitely the perfect time to have this conversation, so let's jump in. So we're rejoined by Shia Zarkesh. It's been a while since we have Shia on. Last time Shia was on our podcast, uh, we were profiling him for our Wildfire B2B Under 30 podcast. Now we're looping him in to the EdTech podcast show, and we're going to get his insight on where coding education is heading in 2019. Shia, great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It definitely has been a while, um, but I know you've been staying busy. PolyUp is continuing to grow and succeed. So uh, why don't you give the audience just a short recap of, I think it was summertime the last time we chatted. Since then, uh, how has PolyUp grown? What has changed? Uh, What are y'all doing? Give us a state of the union. Yeah, sure. Um, so first, really quick, um, quick summary of PolyUp. We're making educational math games uh, for math and computer science classes. So it's like a casual programming environment that can show a lot of mathematical concepts. Um, and in the last few months, what we've actually done is we've started this initiative that we call the Poly Challenge. Um, so the Poly Challenge is kind of a, uh, internally, it's a bit of a marketing spin. Externally, it's a bit of a, you know, a feel-good um, kind of initiative for schools to get engaged um, with math and computer science. Um, so what we're doing is we're, we're connecting donors, nonprofit donors, like, um, say, UCube from Stanford or um, Computational Thinking Alliance to schools um, so that these donors can um, kind of donate money to these schools in, in the form of gifts, um, but to kind of guarantee that their their money goes to good use um, to kind of have uh, PolyUp as a middleman. So what we're going to have is if you play with PolyUp puzzles and kind of improve your math and computer science skills, um, obviously all of this is being free, um, you have a higher chance to kind of win these prizes. Um, and these are like classroom prizes. Um, so we're using donorschoose.org where teachers can kind of declare, you know, what they would like for their classroom, whether it be, say, a new piece of tech, Chromebooks, um, kind of content or textbooks, anything, anything they want really. Um, and we're connecting these these donors to these teachers through Donor Choose um, with Polyo. So yeah, that's kind of the the scope of it. I love it. But yeah. No, I I love the fact that you're already basically breaking out of just being an ed tech startup, but you're trying to influence the community you know you're trying to bring the community together and you're you're trying to be a thoughtful addition to the plethora of ed tech innovative companies why have y'all decided to go down that route and to really from the beginning set yourselves up as um i guess almost philanthropic um as a company so so you see right now a lot of the ed tech companies what they do is they they charge some sort of subscription model or some premium model um, where maybe they'll limit the number of students a, t- a school can use using their service um, or maybe restrict some features unless they pay. Um, and, and at PolyUp, we, we really don't like this for a couple of reasons. Um, I mean, first of all, there's really not that much money involved. Um, you're not going to become like a, a global force um, by, you know, getting eking out a little bit of money here and there from the school system. It's already so um, leached off of that, 
that really every edtech product trying to you know add to that a tiny portion of that is really going to get uh, sorry not that much money um, but really the the more important reason um, at least to me is that if you're restricting um, what features you want to give to people or, or your service as a whole you're restricting the impact you can have and right polyup is it's first and foremost a, a social impact company. We're made by people who love math, right? We're teachers, um, former teachers, and and you know, learning specialists who really love math and want to create something um, for the community. So it would feel kind of uh, almost, I would say, ironic or um, hypocritical to to make people pay for this, like a betrayal to what your core values are. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and personally, I just, it's such a, it's such a new and different product, um, than what exists. Um, uh, I, I think it really does do a lot of good. Um, uh, and I, I would, I would not feel, uh, feel good at night if, if we were charging people for it. So Shia, I kind of want to pick your brain now on a different subject, something a little more industry specific. I'd like to look at how coding education is going to change or perhaps get better, maybe get worse, whatever your thoughts are in 2019. And I think it's a, an especially important time to be talking about coding education because coding jobs are just becoming much more prevalent and much more exciting from industry to industry. I mean, right now, some of the highest paying jobs are those data science, computer science jobs because not everyone can do it. And if you spend your degree time perfecting coding language, then you're going to walk out into the workforce with definitely some aces up your sleeve. So it's an exciting time to be in the back end of that industry, which is what I would consider poly up is, you know, providing the education from an early age to people who might be interested or maybe don't even know they're interested, but could find passion in coding and in mathematics. So give me your general take. Where do you see coding education going in 2019? What is going to change? What's going to stay the same? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question and, and a really relevant one, too. Um, so thanks for asking that. I think coding education is going to go in a couple, um, have a couple kind of major um, paradigm shifts. I think the first one is that in general, coding is going to integrate with a lot of other topics in the classroom. So what we've seen so far is a huge push to institute coding classes in, in, in schools. Um, and there's been a lot of money poured into that, and, and I think that's, that's a great thing. Um, it, it really is an important skill that needs to be taught. Um, but the way I see coding is that it's not just one topic that needs to be taught in one class. It's really a, a product of a way of thinking that is extremely important in the 21st century. And what I think we'll see is that that way of thinking, or what we call computational thinking, is going to become more relevant in, in every su subject. So not just your, your computer science class and not even just your math class. Uh, we already see a lot of um, teachers instituting like computational thinking, exercises, things that are um, kind of uh, on, the, on the edge of math and co uh, computer science, somewhere in between. Um, but even, even other topics like science, um, even humanities topics, you're going to see a lot of teachers do exercises with um, I guess numbers and coding say even in an English class you can you can analyze a, a text um, for its writing style in an objective numerical way 
Um, so, so things like that are, I think, what we're going to see a lot more of. And we're going to see a huge push for starting um, in the next few years. Um, so, so overall, that's the first one, um, integrating coding with a variety of topics. Um, and the second one, I think, is going to be a push for makerspaces. So we already see a few schools um, that really are, are proud of their uh, makerspaces and really push them. Things like robotics, things like um, 3D printing, uh, things like allowing students to really, really embark on projects and make, make things by themselves. Um, and I think that is going to become an even more important thing. Um, but one thing that the industry, industry really hasn't, hasn't gone to yet, and where I think PolyUp might even be ahead of the industry, um, is in making these makerspaces in augmented reality. Um, and it might seem like a very um, esoteric, you know, specific, you know, shot in the dark. Sure. Um, but augmented reality is, is really um, what educational makerspaces should be because it comes at zero cost. You can do whatever you want. The, the possibilities are, are literally limitless. Um, and you can also build experiences that are a lot more educational um, by putting things that would, would really not be possible in physical reality. Um, so, so in practice, what this would look like is students can look through phones or devices, laptops, whatever tech they use in the classroom, and it seems as if there is an additional object in the classroom that does not really exist um, in reality. Uh, and that's where the augmented reality comes into play. Um, so just imagine you can have things like a robot um, and I know there's currently a huge push for things like robots in the classroom. I think the, there's this product called Sphero where you can program the spherical robot to do a variety of tasks, go wherever you want it to. Um, and it's a really, really good exercise. Um, it builds a lot of creativity and computational thinking skills and really allows students to embark on projects. Um, but the problem is that Sphero costs a lot of money. It's like 30 to 50 bucks as far as I'm, last time I checked. Um, and it might be feasible for some classrooms, um, but if you want every student to have their own Sphero, it, it starts to become expensive. So imagine if there's no maintenance costs, it never breaks, um, and it's completely free. Um, and it, you can even do things like trace out the path that the Sphero goes, um, thanks to the power of augmented reality. So, so it really is a huge, has a huge potential for education, um, and we've seen a few demos of it from, from big companies, um, but it hasn't really become an industry-wide trend yet. Um, and I think that's where the industry is going to head in 2019, 2020, and beyond. That's pretty exciting stuff. I mean, especially for PolyUp, I imagine there are some opportunities to partner with schools, school districts, whatever that might be. What are some of those possibilities in 2019 now that coding is really becoming a lucrative career option, but also since it's being embedded into so many different aspects of education from primary to secondary to collegiate and, and really just even outside of mathematics courses like you were saying in English courses even? So I think Polyup sits at a really nice intersection right here because it is a generalized, um, essentially programming tool that is extremely easy to pick up. We have third graders pick it up within five to ten minutes. Um, and it's also very powerful. It can be integrated with a variety of augmented reality and physical reality tools. That's what we're working on right now. Um, so we hope that Polyup becomes this general purpose tool to express mathematical and numerical expressions in a computational way. So hopefully, um, I guess the, the possibility and the opportunity is for Polyup to be instituted into not only uh, math and computer science classrooms, but even things like a chemistry classroom where you're 
um, modeling the decay of uranium-235. And also on, I guess, the business side of things, um, we see that a lot of um, big companies, um, say Google, um, Mattel, even, even name brands like Coke, are trying to have this social impact and positive social awareness associated with their brand. Um, and a big way that these companies are trying to do that is by kind of uh, reaching their tendrils into the education space um, to kind of associate with their brand with education and, and positive impact. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity here. And this is kind of, I guess, the, the core business model of PolyUp um, to work with these larger companies um, and allow PolyUp to either modify a product that these companies offer Say a toy company could offer an, a remote control car, and with PolyUp, you could um, really modify and program this remote control car. Um, or even just, just through brand awareness. Um, say in augmented reality, uh, we can make a character that you are programming into really whatever branded um, piece of content or image that we want it to be. Um, so there's a lot of business opportunities because these businesses want to be associated with with such a positive impact tool. Um, and lastly, I guess, from the product side, uh, what we're working on right now and what we will be working on for the foreseeable future is, is really building these um, AR integrations and AR experiences. Um, we're currently working on a demo of a robot that you can program in AR. So not only can you move it forward or backward, you can actually create procedures um, that it will follow. For example, go forward 10 steps, take a right, and go forward five steps. Um, and this isn't an entirely new idea. There, this is sorry. And this isn't a, in, sorry. This isn't an entirely new idea. Um, it's actually based on this thing called logo programming. Um, if you want to search that up, but putting it in AR um, is kind of where we bring something new to the table. And combining it with such a easy to use programming environment like PolyUp um, is going to allow its impact to to reach. Uh, much younger and a wider variety of people, not just the ones who are interested in coding, but really every student um, from K through 12. And also the AR component is going to bring a lot more impact to that. So the students will see this robot moving um, in what they perceive to be their reality through, through a phone. Um, and that's really going to stick with them is what we've seen. Well, it seems like a pretty lucrative time to be in this industry, to be doing what you're doing. And especially with your more philanthropic initiatives, it sounds like PolyUp might set itself up for major success this year. We'll have to wait and see. I'm, I'll check back in in a few months again. Seems like we chime in every four or five, but I'll ping you again soon because I'd love to see if any of those opportunities do come into fruition and really how things continue to evolve in the world of coding education. So thank you, Shia, for coming on the podcast and giving us your insight. Thanks a lot, man. It was really nice talking to you. Thanks again to Shia for that great insight. Shia was definitely one of my favorite people I met at ISTE in June. I just remember first time we met, I could immediately tell he was that young mind craving the opportunity to share his insight and passions with students. And being such a young innovator himself, I don't think we explained this during the podcast, but he co-founded 
Polly up while still in high school, and that's why he's the CTO, Chief Teenage Officer of Polly Up. And it was just cool to see this student become the teacher while still a student. It just goes to show that the boundaries we place on our potential careers are really ones we place on ourselves. It, you know, you can find a way to innovate and be that thought leader no matter your age. He's definitely an inspiration. So for our second feature today, we're going to take a look at the legacy that higher education has left on the world. It's an ingrained part of our culture, and not just ours, but worldwide, to attend a college or university. A bachelor's degree is, in essence, the price of admission for higher-paying positions in our workforce. But will that always remain? Does a college degree today even hold the same value as it did 20 years ago? We're going to sit down with Clint Clarkson, another previous MarketScale contributor and founder of eLearning Alchemy, as well as with Scott Meunier, managing partner who heads instructional design and business development at eLearning Alchemy. Meunier is also a principal of secondary education based out of Alberta, Canada. And the two have a varied history within the education space and have very pointed thoughts on the subject of what does the future of higher education look like in today's workforce? So let's jump into this conversation and begin the roundtable discussion. All right, so for this podcast conversation and debate, we're going to be having Scott Meunier and Clint Clarkson joining us. Clint is a repeat guest. He is the founder of eLearning Alchemy. We also have Scott Meunier on. He is a managing partner with eLearning Alchemy and also a principal of secondary education based out of Alberta. Clint, great to have you back on. How are you doing today? Doing wonderful. Thank you very much for the invitation. Absolutely. And Scott, how about you? I'm having a great day. Just, just rolling here. Yes, just a busy one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. But I'm excited. So, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to have you both give your insight here. So to start things off, I think we just need to get your general opinions on the subject. So Scott, if I had to pitch this to you, it would be the idea of is higher education, so collegiate, you know, are those degrees still as valuable today as they were maybe several years ago? And are employers is the workforce looking for the same things Uh, i think it's kind of a yes and no answer i'll give my input later but scott i'd love to hear from you what you think just sort of off the bat it would depend on the time range that you're that you're referencing but i would say that in general the the credentials that are coming out of uh, public post-secondary institutions are not the they're not regarded necessarily in the same way as they would have been i guess a generation ago or two generations ago. Um, of course, there's been a little bit of a skew uh, with uh, with credentials being, um, I guess the market's more flooded with different types of credentials uh, from post-secondary institutions, and therefore there's been a little bit of a dilution of what a credential might actually mean uh, in the workforce. So it's definitely not the same as it was a generation ago. Clint, how about you? What are your thoughts on the subject? Yeah, I think generally I agree with Scott. Uh, you specifically referenced collegiate higher education. Uh, I think the the answer to the question depends specifically not 
specifically on, you know, are we talking about college university education? Are we talking about trade schools? Uh, when we use the term higher education, we often mean college and universities. I don't like that. I think trade skills, why, why do we emphasize the intellectual side versus the actual tactical skill side, which is just as valuable? So, so that comes into it as well. Uh, but, but I agree, a generation ago, they were looked at very differently than they are today. And that's such an interesting concept. To me, it feels like it's because we're seeing other venues for education rise up and gain more validity. But at the same time, I think it's also become more expected to have a college degree to, or at least, yeah, a college degree to get a job. And when you really think about it now, if everyone has a college degree, do they begin to lose their value, right? How do you differentiate now? Just to really stand out, you got to get a master to really stand out. You got to get a PhD. But what if that doesn't really apply in your industry? You know, it's not necessary. So it's definitely a tricky subject. Um, Scott, why don't you explain to me a little bit what you've seen in the industry? Why do you feel like in this, or let me rephrase that. Scott, why don't you give me a little bit of insight here? Why do you feel like the collegiate degree has lost some of its value? Do you think it's an oversaturation? Do you think it's because there are other venues out there that hold equal weight or maybe are becoming more attractive than going the traditional college route? What have you felt? Well, there's definitely, as I said earlier, and I'm glad that Clint mentioned that there that there is a um at least in canada there's there is uh, some differentiation between trade schools and and academic um post-secondary institutions the um the, there has been dilution i would say in the last two generations uh as you kind of referenced saying like um it now is sort of just the the cost of entry you know having a bachelor's degree or a, a master's degree or an associate's degree um so the um the market is is more competitive for the kinds of credentials that could um, that 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 employers are seeing, but I think also what might um, and you may go into this in greater detail, I'm sure. But the the um, the employers are, I think, becoming a little bit more savvy about the kinds of like they know that the bachelor's degree is the is the cost of entry, so they're looking for other things, and they're looking for they're looking for the kinds of transferable skills that might be uh, might be sort of uh, developed whilst all uh, you know doing your bachelor's uh, your 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 bachelor's degree or your your master's degree um, and and so the and as a person who hires people myself uh, you know I I definitely looked that the necessary credentials exist but then uh, I also you know make hiring choices so much on what is a person's um, interests that aren't related necessarily to their credential, and um, what uh, what things about their their training can we transfer to other circumstances? Uh, and I think I think employers are playing a large part in having to suss out what a person can actually do in a workplace. I think in addition to Scott's thoughts, one of the things that really jumps out to me is the the difference in access to information from a generation ago. So. The universities used to be the gatekeepers to great case studies and great facilitators and really a lot of, of information. And now we can access that information so easily, whether it's buying a textbook off of Amazon 
or checking out a YouTube video, uh, that information is, is readily available. You can go find business case studies online, no problem, where you used to have to go to university to have access to those. So there's a lot of information that's available now that used to be held uh, under key by the university. That's definitely part of it. And then beyond that, businesses have become far more capable of developing their own employees. Now, from a learning and development perspective, strictly, uh, there's still some significant gaps there as far as how we're training employees or developing employees. But the idea of taking a high performer, giving them challenging assignments, and letting them learn whether they have a degree or not has been seen and proved out as a great way to develop individuals in the business, in particular leadership, in leadership roles. Right, right. There's that idea that experience is, you know, a little more tangible than just the bachelor's degree. I mean, I know that I probably wouldn't be where I'm at today. I mean, yes, the bachelor degree holds its weight, especially if you're coming from a university that is regarded for that degree. So coming out of the University of Missouri with a journalism degree holds weight. But I definitely don't think I'd be where I'm at today if I didn't take some of the initiative to produce my own content, to find ways to get involved and get that experience that was outside of just what I was doing in class. And uh, I think employers value that. But I'm starting to see this transition that will they eventually value it to the point where they don't really even care if you have the bachelor's degree, you know, just because maybe you get some other kind of online certifications or your plethora of experience. Is that enough to get you a job without having gone through the traditional route? Um, It's an interesting idea. I would say the short answer to that is that, yes, I do see it diminishing. And that is sort of what we're referencing is that is that there are competing credentials, and but there, even perhaps more importantly, there are sort of competing considerations that employers are having with relation to what what people can actually demonstrate that they can do. And there's different, you know, emerging hiring and uh, human resources practices that are um, being designed to sort of suss that out, so that because so many people have um, bachelor's degrees and so many people have master's degrees, it's necessary to go to sort of a secondary set of challenges to determine whether or not a person can can um, cope with the workplace that they're being invited to or or produce the sort of like business outcomes that, that the employers are, are seeking to to achieve so yeah I do agree that there's there there is a dilution now I say that with one caveat which is that the the institution of post-secondary education itself is really careful to not let that slide to the like, so people who represent faculties in post-secondary institutions, and I am imagining mostly academic ones because that's my bias, um, but they defend though the, the sort of like purity of the academic study of the bachelor's degree, the master's degree, or the PhD uh, wholeheartedly whenever possible because, I mean, that's power protecting itself, right? Um, so it, it, the short answer is yes, there's been a slide. I believe that slide will continue as there are new forms of, of discernment available to uh, employers, but that the, uh, the old guard will jealously defend the, the, um, the strength of those. And I'm going to say that probably a good example, and this is where an interesting circumstance that Clint and I share, is that I have a master's degree in, in uh, online learning, and Clint has a, a, a credential, the, the certified trainer um, professional. And I would say that like, like I 
look up to Clint's work, you know, because he has so much experience and, and he has that credential. But I don't think I would pursue that credential having earned the different credential that I have. So like that, those kinds of standards are starting to emerge, right? Well, it's certainly position and industry dependent, even from a union perspective, sometimes that's a factor as, as tenure becomes a consideration in hiring, you can distinguish, how could I say this? You can call out uh, the tenure factor by saying, we're going to select people based on, on these degrees. And now suddenly the union, or sorry, the hiring manager has uh, more flexibility in making the selection when it's when it's not just a, a tenure-based hire. Uh, so there's, there's lots of different factors that play into that. Uh, but as we get better, well, I guess we should say for better or for worse at gathering information and collecting information on individuals. I think what we'll see or what we're already seeing and will continue to see is that our ability to showcase what we're capable of versus just seeing a credential is going to become more and more prevalent in hiring. Right, which is exciting because I think it opens up doors for new people to find those skills that they're best at without necessarily having to spend or fork over several tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars to make it happen. Um, and I'm interested to see how the higher education industry, because it really is an industry, they need to make money and they make money by amping up the idea of, hey, our degrees are valuable and they're a standard, you need to get them. Um, I'm interested to see how the industry reacts to that diminishing value of the bachelor's degree. How are they going to maintain their validity? Are they going to push for a, you know, like basically keeping the same narrative or do you see higher education institutions maybe transitioning how they teach or what they offer? You know, do you think they're going to adapt or do you think they're going to stay stead strong? I'm going to close on this thought and I'm glad that you asked that. <clears throat> because, excuse me there, um, I see that, at least in Canada, post-secondary institutions are um, almost like government in how slow that they're able to respond to needs for innovation. Um, and, and as a result, I mean, the, <laughs> the, their ability to, to respond to the change in, I guess, what you'd call the, the, um, the power of the credentials is, is in question in my mind, because the and having worked in government and having worked you know with the universities i can say that um that is probably the major challenge of those organizations that the ability to respond to the need for innovation is um is low in those institutions and organizations uh, i will say this clearly the economics aren't working uh if we need to charge students what we're charging them uh, currently, uh, it, it's just not sustainable. People are finally just going to say, we're not doing this. And I, and I think it goes one of two ways. Uh, the university itself isn't going to completely die out. Like it, it's too, it's been ingrained in society for too long. But I do agree that the model is likely going to change. And I, I think that it will shift more towards, I want to use the word subscription versus the, the four-year degree. The, depending on the subject you're in, for a lot of the degrees that people are are pursuing right now, what they learn in year one is obsolete by year four. So what was the, what was the point in doing year one? And other than to learn how to study and be in university, like as a, as a primer, uh, but, but then what's the point of being there for the other four years? So what I expect to see from universities is a shift towards a subscription-based model where if you're going to MIT, you don't go to MIT for four years and collect a degree, you continually 
maintain yourself as a member at MIT. And every year you have to maintain a certain number of credits or do a certain number of courses and continue learning and developing. And then as an organization, if I have an individual who holds that type of subscription, I want to encourage them to take courses that are going to benefit our, my business or the role that that individual wants to to pursue. Uh, so I think that's the shift that needs to happen is more of a subscription based versus a, versus a hey, come in, sit here for four years and hope that it's useful at the end. Uh, but and, and not allowing the learner as well as businesses supporting the learners if they're paying for subscriptions, for example, to target specific skills or specific knowledge that that individual needs. The other thing that I think is going to happen, and this is probably the bigger piece, is to Scott's point about uh, universities not being adaptable enough because of the bureaucracy that exists within them, or exists within many of them. I'd like to say all, but I haven't been to every single one. Uh, they're going to be disrupted by organizations like Amazon and Google. And there's a lot of people that won't like that. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sentiment that we don't want businesses driving the way that that we live our lives. They already are. So um, you know, pining against it happening to education is uh, kind of a silly notion. The universities themselves, well, they may idealistically have uh, things that they're pursuing or or want their values and mission that they, that they want to present. Realistically, they're they're businesses, and they need to they need to make money. The difference is they get grants for doing it, or they get government funding for doing it. Uh, if, if Amazon decided to start a university, I'm confident that Amazon or Google would crush every other university with the exception of maybe some of the Ivy Leagues and very glamorous universities who hold on because of a name. Uh, they, they're just more capable technologically. They don't have the same level of bureaucracy because, they have, because they're not receiving government funding. Uh, that's what I expect to see in the next 10 years is the Amazon university or the Google university. And it's going to be more affordable, more accessible, and the learning's probably going to be better. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll close out on this thought. When I was going through my college degree, I definitely felt stressed. You know, there were several times where I was like, wow, these projects are overwhelming. I'm doing a lot. And I felt like I was getting acclimated for the next step. But nothing prepared me for the traditional 8 to 5, 8 to 6 grind of putting content together, of making it happen every day, day in, day out. And there really was no transition. And I think part of that was based on just the traditional structure of what does a college workload look like? What does a bachelor's degree workload look like? And I feel like eventually we're going to reach a critical mass point where the people graduating college, entering the workforce, have no idea how to integrate into what the workforce is expecting. And I think at that point, we're going to see the education industry have to make real changes. And it kind of puts all the pressure on the individual to just adapt. But I don't know. I feel like maybe there's some responsibility to the industry itself. And I'm interested in seeing how it continues to evolve because, I mean, the workforce changes and what they're expecting from the workforce changes. So it's, um, it's an interesting time definitely to have this conversation and I'm definitely interested in seeing how it pans out. Love a good Socratic seminar roundtable discussion, especially on something as timely as collegiate education. I hope everyone walks away from that conversation with a more open mind on what the future of professional education could be and should be in the States. It's a subject that we'll continue to explore on this podcast in 2019, but for now, that's it. 
for this episode of the EdTech Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed, got some valuable insight out of this. If you did and want to listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. And as you listen to our shows, if you have an inkling of a thought that maybe you have something to contribute to these podcasts, whether that's thought leadership, you know someone who is a professional that you think deserves to be profiled, you think deserves to be part of one of our roundtable discussions, we are open ears. We're always looking to gain some insight from our audience because... Our audience is the one who knows the industry the best. So make sure to shoot me an email with any ideas at daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Again, daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Looking forward to hearing from you all. Again, I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time. Till next time.